you want to look at verses 18 through 20, I had uh, Rory read uh, the greater context here, uh, verses uh, 13 through 20, uh, which I think all flow together, as we will see in our study this morning. But let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we do thank you for uh, your word now. I pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to explain the text uh, accurately, uh, to apply it in a way that's profitable. Uh, To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The theme, as you note on the overhead, is Christ the King. That's the theme of the book of Matthew. And we have worked our way down to that section in chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the King. And Matthew 16, in particular, marks a major transition in Christ's ministry. At this point, Christ is about two and a half years into his three-year ministry. The religious leaders in Israel have flat out, for the most part, rejected uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ and his claims. The rest of the nation is largely fickle and not sure what to think about Jesus Christ. At this point, Jesus presented a test of sorts to the disciples. He asked them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This was the all-important question, you understand. Uh, Christ's entire ministry up to this point really revolved around this issue of who he was. That's the cardinal issue. And the answer was that the people generally thought that Jesus was one of the dead prophets who had now risen from the dead. Well, that prompted a follow-up question, specifically addressed to the disciples themselves. Namely, who do you say that I am? And Peter, ever the outgoing spokesman of the group, answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was the right answer. It indicated that Jesus was the promised coming, deliverer, ruler, as prophesied in the Old Testament, and emphasized that he indeed was of the very nature of God. He was the Son of the living God, emphasizing that he is the living God come in the flesh. Well, Jesus then responded by telling Peter that he was blessed in making this confession, but emphasized that he did not come up with this on his own. Rather, it had been revealed to him by the Father. And that brings us to our study today. Everything in our study today really flows out of Peter's inspired confession. Last week, we saw Peter's inspired confession, but that goes hand in hand with what Christ now goes on to say regarding the revelation of building his church and the part that Peter will play in it. In effect, what Christ goes on to show is why Peter was so blessed in being able to make this great confession of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God. So let's pick it up. Verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Well, it was Jesus who, upon meeting Simon, when he first met him, as we find in John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42, Jesus said to him that he would be called Cephas, which is Aramaic meaning stone, and is interchangeable with the Greek Peter. 
So they both mean a rock or a stone. Cephas, Aramaic. Peter is Greek, interchangeable. So in effect, it was Jesus at the very beginning of his relationship with Peter who really named him Rocky, if you will. Where's Rocky? He's going to appreciate this. Anyway, yes. (laughs) You have a special name. Uh, This was Peter. Jesus named him this. He gave him this name. And it has great significance, as we will see. Well, Jesus here reminds Peter that his name is now Peter. He was Simon, son of Barjona, emphasizing his, his humanness. But now Jesus has renamed him with a special mission. This name was given to him by Jesus himself. And this is interesting because Jesus has just emphasized his pre-Christ name, if you will. Simon, meaning uh, hearing, in verse 17. But now he says to him, you are Peter. Emphasizing the new name that he has given to him, which now reflects his new calling. Note uh, this. uh, I'll put it up on the overhead here. Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But I also, in addition to this emphasis on him being human, and he didn't get this on his own, I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Well, this serves to highlight the change from who Peter was before to now how Christ is going to use him in a rock-like way. He said to him, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, this is one of the most debated phrases in all the Bible. In fact, we have two verses like that. We got verse 18. If that's not enough, we have verse 19. We're going to cover them both this morning. Even very good scholars, very good men in our camp, disagree on how this should be understood in terms of the nuance. And the issue is this. What is this rock on which Christ will build his church? That's really very important to know. There are three main views, which all in a qualified sense are worthy of consideration. Uh, And all three have conservative scholars that defend them. I read about 30 commentaries on this this week, and they're about equally split here. So this is probably not a place to be overly dogmatic, although I'm personally convinced that the view I take is the preferred view. (laughs) And you will see that as I preach my way through the sermon. Well, some take it that this rock on which Christ is building his church is Christ himself. Others think it is Peter in a qualified sense. And still others, such as myself, believe that the rock is the inspired confession that Peter has just made. So here are our options. The rock on which the church is built. One, Christ himself. Two, Peter. Three, Peter's confession. Now, some think that Christ himself is the rock in view here. And to support this, what they inevitably end up doing is going to a number of other scriptures that do indeed support the idea that Christ is the rock, the cornerstone of the church. 
The problem is that to support their argument, they go outside this immediate context here in Matthew to make their case. And they largely depend upon outside context to make the issue here. I'm more interested in this context right here and what is being said in the flow of thought in this immediate context. And you know that's kind of the central to my ministry, learning to think in context everywhere, all the time. Now, there are a number of grammatical problems with this view. First, the text uh, views Jesus as being the architect who is doing the building in contrast to the rock that is being built upon. Now, both could possibly be true, but Jesus does not say, I will build the church upon myself, the rock. Grammatically, he could have said that, but that's not technically how it goes. This is not the language of the text. It is theologically sound as we look elsewhere, but I don't think that's the exact nuance that's being emphasized here. So when I, I would agree with the uh, evangelical commentary on the Bible when they say, as Jesus identifies himself as the builder, the rock on which he builds is most naturally understood as something or someone other than Jesus himself. Also note that the third person pronoun, this, is linguistically awkward if Christ is directly talking about himself. If Christ was talking about himself, we might expect him to say so in the language of first person, as in the sense of I. Another view is that the rock is Peter himself. But again, there are a number of reasons why I do not think this is the best view. It certainly needs qualifying. In the Greek text, it is obvious that there is a play on words here. And we might ask, well, why is that? Some want to say, well, there's Aramaic behind the Greek. And in the Aramaic, there wasn't necessarily a play on words. But the Greek is the text. The text is the Greek. God gave it to us in the Greek through the apostles. And so in the Greek, it is obvious that there is a play on words here. And that is the name Peter and the rock, while being similar, very similar, are different. So here is what we have. We have Peter, which is Petros, meaning a small stone. And we have rock, which is the Greek word Petra, which refers to a large foundation boulder. Now, there's no denying that there are two different Greek words here. No denying that. They are similar and yet different. Now, if the Lord had wanted to clearly designate Peter as the rock, he could have simply said, on you. But he didn't say that. Uh, Thomas Constable says this. If Jesus had wanted to identify Peter as the rock on which he would build the church, the clearest way to do this would have been to use the same word, right? Uh, you are Petrus, and on Petrus I will build my church. Uh, that would have been really very clear. Also, the use of the third person pronoun, this. If Christ is speaking directly to Peter, again, this comes off awkward. Now, some again want to go outside the immediate context and show that Peter is involved in the foundation of the church in places such as 
Ephesians chapter 2. But here's the problem with that. The emphasis here in Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, always has Peter addressed in the singular. While in these other texts, we have Peter as one of the group of the apostles and prophets on which the church is built, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. Here, Peter alone is being addressed. Yes, Peter was part of the foundation of the church, consisting of the apostles, prophets, and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, as seen in Ephesians 2.20. But that is the point. He was, many, he was one of many involved in this process, and not the singular rock involved, as emphasized here in Matthew 16, verse 18. No other verse refers to Peter as the foundation of the church. Nowhere else do we find Peter having primacy over the other apostles or over the whole church in this way. Yes, he was often functionally addressed as first among equals, but never has a singular primacy. Warren Wearsby says, Certainly Peter in his two epistles claimed to be nothing more than an apostle, 1 Peter 1, 1, an elder, 1 Peter 5, 1, and a servant of Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 2, 1. G. Campbell Morgan makes this observation. If we trace the figurative use of the word rock through Hebrew scriptures, we find that it is never used symbolically of man, but always of God. So here at Caesarea Philippi, it is not upon Peter that the church is built. A footnote here. Matthew 16, 18 is a key verse in Roman Catholic theology. Actually, verses 18 and 19 both are. And they argue that Peter, being the rock, became the first bishop of Rome and was thus given primacy over the other apostles in the church. Furthermore, this primacy was then transmitted to his successors right down to the present-day pope. In truth, Peter was only first among equals, among the apostles, and really never claimed a position of supremacy over them. They were all equally apostles. And by the way, Peter was married. Just saying. And uh, Peter was fallible. Uh, the early church held fast to the apostles, plural, doctrine. And not only to that propagated by Peter. In Galatians 2.9, Peter is spoken of as being one of the pillars in the early church, but not the singular one. At the first council, the Jerusalem council, uh, Peter had a role, yes, but James seems to have the dominant role in that first council. Christ alone is said to be the only foundation that can be laid in 1 Corinthians 3.11. Yes, in terms of revelatory foundation, in the sense of Ephesians 2, uh, God used the apostles and prophets, but ultimately Christ alone is the one foundation that the church is built upon. The third view, and my view, which in my view is the most probable view, is that this rock represents the rock truth confession that Peter has just given in verse 16, saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which Jesus then proceeded to bless in verse 17. This third view makes the best sense 
in that it understands this rock as applying to the major rock truth of Peter's confession. This fits well with the third-person pronoun. No problem with that. Also, this view fits well with the play on words that Peter is a small stone, but yet at the same time he was blessed to give forth the bolder-sized truth of who Christ is as the Son of the living God. There are really three reasons that I hold to this view as best. There's a contextual reason, there's a grammatical reason, and there's a theological reason. And when I put all these reasons together, I end up with my view. First, contextually, the conversation flows from Peter's confession. That's where it comes from. This is the climactic statement that nailed who Christ is, which was the whole issue up to this point in the ministry of Christ. Everything in this context flows out of Peter's great confession of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of the living God, which was then blessed by Jesus Christ because of the essence of that confession. Well, from this premise flows what Christ is going, that Christ is going to build his church upon it. Second, grammatically, Peter fits well with the idea of a small rock, while the word rock, Petra, fits well with a large foundational rock. The third person pronoun, this rock, fits perfectly with the great confession of Peter. The play on words, in effect, says, Peter, you are a rock used in a special way, but the big confession you were just blessed to bring forth is really the big rock upon which Christ will build his church. And third, theologically, this idea of Peter's confession being the rock that Christ builds his church upon harmonizes perfectly with John chapter 20 and verse 31. You see, John wrote the entire gospel of John, which I can't tell you the prominent place that the gospel of John has in our New Testament scriptures. This is the one book that was written for the specific purpose that we might come to believe in Christ and have life in his name. That's why John wrote. So John wrote this entire gospel to that end. And the thing about John's gospel is that it was written very late in the apostolic era of the church. Being written about 90 AD, about 60 years into the church age. Deep into the church age. He didn't write this two years after the church just got started. He wrote this 60 years in to the church age. So he's well aware of all kinds of church truth at this point, as were all the apostles. In fact, at this point, John's the, the last living apostle. So what John says, in terms of his purpose statement, harmonizes perfectly with Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Uh, Note this. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's his confession. John says, I wrote my whole book. He's 20 chapters in at this point. He says, here's why I'm writing. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the son of God. And believing you may have life in his name. The very same thing that Peter said. I mean, it's an exact parallel. It's not close. It's exact. That's significant. Now let me ask you, how does one become a member of Christ's church? It's not a difficult question. 
How do you become a member? I didn't say Southview Bible Church. I'm saying, how do you become a member of Christ Church? You believe the gospel. You believe that Jesus is a Christ, the son of the living God. And when you do that, that moment you believe, you become a member of Christ's family called the church. The moment a person becomes a true believer in Christ, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit, as stated in Ephesians 1.13. And 1 Corinthians 12.13 is very clear that by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. You have the Spirit, the Spirit places you, baptizes you into the body of Christ, a spiritual reality. And that happens at the moment of saving faith. You don't say, well, I'm a believer, but I'm hoping that Christ will let me into his church. No, the moment you believe, you're a member of Christ's church. This wonderful reality of becoming a member of Christ's body, the church, is predicated on a saving faith in keeping with Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16. And John's purpose statement in John 20, 31. This is how Christ is building his church. It's all based on the giant rock truth of Peter's confession. This is the only way you can become a member of Christ's church. And this is how he is building it. Notice Christ says... I will build my church. He didn't say, Peter, you're going to build it. No, Christ is going to do it. Now, he's going to use Peter. He's going to use us. He's going to use this great confession. But it's going to be Christ who does it. It's Christ's church and not anyone else's. People sometimes say to me, how's your church doing? I don't have a church. What? What happened? I never had one. Really? I thought you were a pastor. It's not my church. You understand? It's just not my church. Now, when Christ says, I will build my church, that is significant. Because elsewhere, in places such as 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is called the church of the living God. Now, let me ask you. Is it Christ's church? Or is it God's church? You could say it a little more robustly. Yes. Yes. Both are true because Christ is God. This is Christ's doing. Today, people emphasize being visionaries. They have all kinds of models and all kinds of plans and schemes on how they think they're going to build the church. It's all very man-centered and sometimes even well-intended, I think. People think uh, they get a crowd and they're building the church. You know, you get crowds, maybe have a basketball game or something. You get crowds, right? I mean, you get crowds. Doesn't mean you're building the church, just means you're getting a crowd. Well, it might be their church sometimes if they're building it. But the question is, is it Christ's church? If it's Christ's church, he's building it. People, a lot of times, tend to think they have a better idea. And they like to add a little bit to God's manual, the Bible, the New Testament scriptures. John MacArthur writes, By human reason, persuasiveness, and diligence, it is possible to win converts to an organization, a cause, a personality, and to many other things. But it is totally impossible to win a convert 
to the spiritual church of Jesus Christ apart from the, uh, the sovereignty of God, His Word, and His Spirit. Human effort can produce only human results. God alone can, provo- uh, can produce divine results. What did, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. This is God's doing. I think Spurgeon was right when he says, I do believe we slander Christ when we think we're able to draw the people by something else but the preaching of Christ crucified. How are we doing this? Well, we just do this different. We do this and, and we'll be successful. Maybe. But how does Christ build his church? It's through the gospel. It's through the truth of Christ. Notice when Christ said, I will build, this is in a future tense. The church was not yet a reality when he spoke this. This was a prophecy of the coming church. And this is really the first announcement of the coming church reality, which would be a brand new thing. It was Christ who sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which was the birthday of the church in Acts chapter 2. And at that point, started building the church proper. All Christians share in a like-saving faith. And we all partake of the unifying reality of the Holy Spirit. This is what binds us together as one spiritual family called the church. The universal church of Jesus Christ. The word church is a Greek word, ekklesia, which literally means called out ones. The church is not a physical brick and mortar building. And we talk about, uh, you know, well, Lord, we've come into your house. No, no. God has come into his house. We are his house. Uh, Praise the Lord for a building, and I'm thankful for a building. But uh, the real building of God is the people of God. That's the church. God now lives in us. We are said to be the temple of the living God. We, his people, the spirit of God lives inside of us. That's the essence of the church. Now, we are the called out ones, meaning we are called out of the world to Christ. We belong to that sphere called the world, which is the followers of Satan. And they're all united in their rebellion against God, which makes them part of a world system. We have been called out of that. And we now belong to Jesus Christ. We are called out ones. We've been called out of the world system. We now belong to Jesus Christ. The word church is found 114 times in the New Testament. And 90 of those times it refers to the local church, which is where functional body life takes place, largely. This is where the elder leadership is represented. This is where accountability takes place. This is where gift use takes place. This is where the the many, many, many one another passages in the New Testament apply. This is where, where Hebrews says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together and so much more as we see the day approaching. All of that applies to the local church. Now it is amazing that Matthew, the gospel that emphasizes Israel and the kingdom, is the only gospel that introduces church truth towards the end of Christ's earthly ministry. This shows there's a definite transition that was on the horizon as introduced by Christ. 
in the scriptures, there is the reality of the universal church introduced here in Matthew 16. This church family consists of all believers in Christ from the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, until the rapture. The dead in Christ. In Christ is a church phrase. The dead in Christ will rise first and we will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Church is complete at that point. So there's a universal church aspect, and that's emphasized here in Matthew 16. But then there's also the local church, as I mentioned. And the reality of the local church is introduced by Christ in Matthew 18. So the church is mentioned twice in the Gospels, both times in Matthew. The universal church mentioned here in Matthew 16, verse 18. The local church in Matthew 18, verse 17. Christ promises to build his church, which he is still doing today. I will build my church implies an ongoing process. Uh, It's in process. More being added to uh, the family as we go along. It's not complete yet. But then Christ makes this additional promise. I love this promise. I maybe should have saved this for a couple of weeks till Resurrection Sunday. It, It fits nicely there. But in the sovereignty of God, we're going to do it today here. But he makes this additional promise. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Christ will build his church, and we have his word on it, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, most everyone agrees that the gates of Hades refers to the realm of death as so understood by the Jews. Let me give you a couple of references. Here in uh, Isaiah... Chapter 38, verse 10. It says, got to look, make sure. Okay. thought I had two references up there, but I guess I just got one. Isaiah 38, verse 10. Hezekiah is speaking. He says, I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. And I am deprived of the remainder of my years. Clearly, the gates of Sheol here is talking about death. The realm of death. Job 17, 16 Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Clearly again, a a reference to this realm of death. The Old Testament Hebrew word Sheol has as its counterpart the New Testament Greek word Hades. Sheol in the Old Testament, Hebrews, uh, Greek Hades in the New Testament. They're equivalents. So Sheol, Hades, is the realm of departed spirits in the Old Testament. And now in the New Testament is the realm of departed spirits of those who are lost. The ultimate weapon that the devil has is death. It is the thing that terrifies the entire world. We've been living under this terror in a specially focused way the last couple of years. Christ came to defeat the devil and the power of death. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is what Christ came to do. Destroy him who had the power of death and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
Now realize the context in which Christ spoke these words here in Matthew 16, verse 18. Immediately after this, I mean immediately, Christ goes on to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed, and then he will rise again the third day. What Christ is saying first and foremost in context is that the realm of death will not stop him. The gates of Hades will not hold him and thus will not prevail, will not prevent him from building his church. He would rise again and he would build his church just as he says. And the resurrection proved it. What happened after the resurrection? What happened 50 days after the resurrection? Day of Pentecost. Here comes the Spirit. Who sends that? Christ. He begins to build his church. Death did not succeed. The devil did not succeed. Hades did not prevail. Beyond that, Christ is saying that the church, which is founded on the truth of believing in Christ as the Son of the living God, would not be held captive by death. In the resurrection of Christ, we as the church have the promise that the realm of death cannot hold us. I love this. In the Old Testament, believers went to either that there was two two sections of Hades. There was a torment section and there was a paradise section. In the Old Testament, believers went to the paradise section of Hades as seen in Luke chapter 16. When Christ died, he said to the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Where did he go? Acts chapter 2, he went to Hades. His soul did. When Christ died, his soul went to Sheol, Hades. But as it says prophetically of the Messiah in Psalm 16.10, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He went to the paradise section, his soul did, at the time of his death. He went to the paradise section of Sheol or Hades. But now, but now, for the church, in death, we have no Hades experience. Now at the moment of death, what happens? You you know your Bible. What happens? Instantly, absent from the body, present in hate. No, no, no. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. We're not going to Hades. We're never going to see Hades. No, no, Hades is not going to prevail. Nope, 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 nope. The gates of Hades will never prevail against us because the risen Christ has conquered death. And he says, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I, I, the living Christ, I have the keys of Hades and of death. Death represents the grave where the material body goes at the time of death. Hades is the unseen realm of the dead. It refers to the spirit world of departed souls. Jesus has the keys over this realm, and so we will not fear. He has triumphed over it. Christ has unlocked the gates of Hades for his people. And for us, the promise is that death is ultimately swallowed up in victory. And the guarantee is the resurrection of Christ himself. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, 
Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What we have here from the mouth of Christ is the promise that the realm of death will not triumph over the church. It could not prevent Christ from building his church and it will not triumph over the church. This is a powerful lordship statement. Jesus as the son of the living God can guarantee that the gates of Hades shall not prevail over the church. And this is a direct claim to his power over death. And only God has this kind of power. Well, it is significant that Christ made this statement in the context of a thoroughly pagan context, that is, Caesarea Philippi. As if to say, the reality of Christ building his church is unstoppable, no matter how intense the influence or the power of evil may be. What a great encouragement. No matter the context, no matter what, Christ will build his church. He did not say he might. Rather, he said, I will build my church. You can write this down with indelible ink. Rather, Christ really wrote it down with his blood. In death, the church has a victory cry through Christ, our risen Lord. No other religion in the world can boast what we do in terms of the grave, in terms of death. We serve a risen Savior. There is no other religion in the world can claim such a thing. It's, it's amazing. I, I don't want to get to my resurrection message too early, but I'm here. On behalf of the church, he has conquered the hold on death, the hold of death. Now we need not fear the grave. And this glorious truth is all reflected in the great confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living, living God. This promise comes from the Son of the living God. He is life. He has power over death. The realm of death will not prevail because of who He is. He has all power over the realm of death. And for this reason, the realm of death shall not prevail against the church. As Paul says in Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not like we just barely beat death. You, you cannot imagine how high he has exalted us in the afterlife. We are more than conquerors. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, we read, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit who dwells in you, these mortal bodies have a future, a glorious future. I love this. I love this. I just read this in the last week or so. A believer shared that they want to put this on their epitaph as a winsome witness to make people think as they're walking through the, you know, out there in the graveyard, they're walking along, they see this epitaph, say, what in the world does that mean? And this person wants to put on their tombstone, buried alive. (laughs) I like that. And the reference, I'm writing out the reference. They're not putting the whole reference. They're just putting John 11, 25 uh, and 26, it should say. Uh, John eleven twenty five twenty six reads, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. 
And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I believe the blessed role of Peter related to his confession not only carries through into verse 18, but also into verse 19. And we read there, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now we must not identify the church just mentioned in verse 18 with the kingdom mentioned here in verse 19. Consistency says that the kingdom in view here, as elsewhere in this gospel, is the kingdom that will be inaugurated when the Son of Man comes on the clouds of glory to the earth with power and great glory. Stanley Toussaint says, It seems that it was necessary for the Lord to bring in the subject of the kingdom at this point so that his disciples would not later conclude that the church had taken the place of the kingdom. If verse 18 is difficult, verse 19 is even more controversial. The Roman Catholic Church, again, claims special authority for the Pope based on the keys given to Peter, which were then supposedly passed on to his successors. The papal insignia consists of two prominent keys crossed together. The popular idea of Peter standing at the pearly gates and deciding who can enter into heaven finds its basis in this verse. All of this is completely wrong-headed. The first thing to note here is that the you throughout this verse is singular. Jesus is talking to Peter alone. Peter, as Christ's rock, had a special lead role to fulfill. As such, Christ gave to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And the key to these keys, see what I did there? And the key to these keys was the great confession that he has just been blessed to give. Keys do know two things. You know what keys do? They open and close doors or gates. And the idea of keys denotes authority to do so. Okay, the key will do this. Now you've been given the key. Say, well, you know, the the, the key will open that door, but I don't have the key. Well, I'm sorry, that's going to leave you without anywhere to go. When I became pastor of the church, they gave me keys. I was now in a position of authority to open and close things. Peter, as a rock, was placed by Christ in a position to open and close kingdom realities in relation to his great confession. Now, it is thought that the phrase, keys of the kingdom of heaven, is probably steeped in and based on Isaiah 22 and verse 22. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and shall shut and no one shall open. Now, in context here back in Isaiah, was the leadership role of the chief administrator over the royal house being transferred to a man by the name of Eliakim. Now, he would have possession to the key of the house of David, meaning he would have great authority to open and to shut in making decisions according to his own prerogative, which no one except the king could override. The keys here in Matthew 16, 19 are not literal keys, but rather a metaphor for the message that Peter would deliver. We find Christ using the idea of a key in relation to knowledge when rebuking the lawyers of his day. 
In Luke 11, verse 52, it says, Christ said, Woe to you warriors, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves. Keys make a way of entry. You did not enter yourselves. And those who were entering, you hindered. You have taken away the key of knowledge. Among the Jews, the symbol of keys related to knowledge and was applied to the scribes who were the teachers of the law whose duty it was to unlock the truth of God. The scribes had failed miserably in their responsibility. But Jesus is now giving Peter a special lead responsibility to unlock the knowledge of the kingdom, kingdom truth. After giving New kingdom insight through the parables. In Matthew 13, Jesus said this. Matthew 13, verse 52. Then he said to them, Therefore every scribe, scribe, those, they they were the main teachers. Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Peter's inspired confession put him in a special blessed role as one who was now in a position to present this truth that would eventuate in people going into the kingdom in the context of a whole new age, namely the church age. So, let me ask you another question. How do we get to the kingdom from here, this side of the cross where we live? Well, we get there through believing in Peter's great confession as affirmed by John 20, 31. Faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the only way to the kingdom. You want to get to the kingdom? You have to believe in the great confession of Peter. God had given Peter special insight, and now having been given these keys of knowledge... He would open up the door to the kingdom, as it were, to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and then later to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. The rabbis commonly used the terms bind and loose to denote decisions about what was either forbidden or permitted. Here's one example from ancient rabbinical writings cited by teacher Mike Russ. And here's the example. If your dog dies in your house, is your house clean or unclean? Answer, unclean. If your dog dies outside your house, is your house clean or unclean? Answer, clean. If your dog dies on the doorstep, is your house clean or unclean? Ancient rabbinical writings took the issue head on and pun intended, and decided that if the dog died with its nose pointing to the house, the house was unclean. If the dog died with his nose pointing away from the house, the house was clean. They made a, a binding decision. So the idea of binding and loosening to the Jews related to decisions about what was either bound, forbidden, or loosed, permitted. Having the keys to the kingdom, Peter was now in the role of presenting the conditions of how one could enter 
into the kingdom and what would keep one out of it in the context of a whole new age. This Peter did in reference to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. He told them of the exalted Christ. He told them that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He then told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In Acts 3, Peter told the Jews to repent and be converted so their sins could be blotted out. And so the times of refreshing in the kingdom could come. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter shared the message to the Gentiles, he told them that Jesus was Lord of all, who is ordained by God to be the judge of all. And he proceeded to tell them that whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Thus, Peter, in effect, opened the door to the kingdom in the context of the church age for both the Jews and the Gentiles. He presented the conditions for entry, loosing, and conditions that would prevent entry, binding. Peter, in his rock roll, forged the way and opened the door to the kingdom on both fronts. Those following him build on what Peter opened up, but Peter alone was the one used of God to initially open up this kingdom truth in the church age. Moody Bible Commentary. People would be loosed from their sins forgiven as they responded correctly to the gospel message or bound in their sins remain unforgiven if they did not. Note the binding and loosening pertains to whatever, which is neuter. That is, it relates to things related to kingdom truth. And the grammar related to what Peter would bind and loose is significant. It's not like Peter did this according to his own prerogative and then heaven verified it as if heaven is following Peter's lead. No. Rather, it is the other way around. Heaven ordained it and then Peter in his apostolic rock roll affirmed it. A literal translation, and I like uh, the scripture reading this morning, which is a very literal translation. Whatever you shall bind on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall already have been loosed in heaven. That's the sense. The Greek is complicated, but when you work it all the way through, (laughs) this is where you end up. Heaven, not Peter, initiates all binding and loosing. But Peter and his apostolic rock roll would authoritatively announce and introduce these things. Ed Glasscock makes this summary statement. Jesus was telling Peter that he would be the the voice of what had been previously determined in heaven, not that he would be declaring what heaven would then confirm. Heaven decides, and the apostles as led by the Spirit then announced. Peter in his great rock position would speak for heaven, just as he had done in his confession. And as he did so under inspiration, it would be binding. Verse 20. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. What? 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 The greatest of all confessions. Christ is going to build his church on it. And yet he tells them, now shut up about it, would you? He said it much more graciously than that. But he commanded them. It was not a suggestion. He commanded Look at that. Maybe you want to underline. Commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. At first glance, we might wonder what in the world, why is Jesus, after telling Peter that he was blessed for this inspired confession, that he was the Christ, 
the Son of God, would now command his disciples not to tell anyone else. Why? Well, it's very understandable when you look at the context. It makes perfect sense. You see, the landscape in Israel was already very filled with confused drama over who Jesus was. Now, if the disciples went forth proclaiming that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the populace would think of this through a political lens, which they were groomed to think through, thinking Jesus is now here to bring political deliverance. And that would only stir up tremendous upheaval and would be at cross purposes as to where Christ was going, namely to the cross. Understand that part of being the Christ involves Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins and then rising again. This is exactly how Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, saying the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose again, according to the scriptures. But even the disciples themselves were not there in their understanding at this point. They too had a major blind spot in what it meant that Jesus was the Christ. They now had his person right, as stated in Peter's confession, They now understood properly that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. But what was missing is that they did not yet understand the cross work of the Christ. They did not yet understand that part of the Christ story. In fact, the narrative immediately goes from Peter's great confession to Peter then rebuking Christ for saying that he was to be killed and rise the third day. For this reason, it was not the time for them to tell anyone. They had just enough knowledge at this point to be dangerous. However, however, after his resurrection, it would then be time to go forth and tell the world. They would then understand the whole picture. Then they would understand about both the person of Christ and the cross work of the Christ. But at this point, they did not. And so Christ commanded them not to tell anyone. Well, in the narrative here in Matthew 16, we see three things flowing out of Peter's blessed confession. And I think it all flows out of that confession. That's that's my view. Number one, we see that Christ will build his church on this rock truth. Number two, we see the truth of Peter's confession means that the church will triumph over the realm of death. And number three, we see that Peter's confession holds the keys to the kingdom. Indeed, Peter was blessed to make such a confession and then to impart... The truth of it in the birth and the inauguration of the church, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. He had a very special rock roll in that regard. In the parallel passage of John 20, doubting Thomas upon seeing the risen Christ said, my Lord and my God. And remember the follow-up? Jesus said to him this, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And then this is followed up with the purpose statement. It is written that you might believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. Peter was blessed in confessing that Jesus is a Christ who is the Son of God. In like manner, blessed are all those who come to believe in Jesus as the Christ the Son of God. Let me ask you this morning, are you among the blessed? 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be blessed. You shall be blessed in becoming a part of Christ's forever family called the church. You shall be blessed in the fact that the realm of death shall not prevail over you. You shall be blessed in that the kingdom has now been opened to you. And this is ultimately your destiny. Indeed, blessed are all those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and have our closing song.